All right. Well, let's, um, I think we're just about at the hour. So let's go ahead and kick it off. Thank you so much, Mark and Peyton, for, um, for joining us. And uh, good evening, everyone. And welcome to It's Time to Heal, A16Z's clubhouse room to cover the future of bio and healthcare in a loosely structured interactive discussion. Uh, my name is Vinita. I'm one of the general partners at Andreessen Horowitz. And with me tonight, here are my A16Z bio uh, GP colleagues, Jorge Conde, Vijay Pandey, and Julie Yu. And today our special guests um, in this episode on AI for biologics are Mark DePristo and Peyton Greenside, co-founders of Big Hat Biosciences. Um, Big Hat, in full disclosure, recently became an A16Z bio portfolio company about which we're very, very excited. We had the privilege of leading their Series A financing and joining their board along with fantastic partners at 8VC. I see Francisco in the audience and it'd be great to, to get him up here soon um, as well. Um, just a little bit about Mark and Peyton um, so that the audience is, um, has a little bit of background on you both. Um, so a bit about Mark. Prior to founding Big Hat, Mark led a very large software engineering team at the Broad Institute. Um, it's actually where I first met him, and his team did a lot of very cool things. They shipped the now famous software package called GATK for genome data analysis. They built a lot of the infrastructure to run a huge consortium project called the Thousand Genomes Project in the early days of human genome sequencing. And after his time at the Broad, Mark went on to start and lead the genomics team within Google Brain. Um, in addition to now being the CEO of Big Hat, Mark is a proud father to three daughters and two corgis. A bit about Peyton. Peyton is also a co-founder of Big Hat and serves as the CSO currently. Prior to Big Hat, she was the inaugural very first Schmidt Science Fellow, a program funded by former um, Google Chairman Eric Schmidt and his wife, Wendy, which is a, a very unique postdoctoral fellowship experience designed specifically to train interdisciplinary leaders, um, which Peyton has now has now become. She previously earned her PhD in biomedical informatics from Stanford. And in a great sign of Mark and Peyton's partnership, Peyton's fun fact is that she is the proud owner of four bikes and exactly zero corgis. Um, <laughs> so our goal up, till, to... up till now. <laughs> up, till, up till now. We'll Every see. Time we'll see. The Zoom calls, my, my, uh, I don't know what the word, what the word is, but um, my desire to get a corgi increases. increases. <laughs> um, so our goal today is to frame a discussion about the growing role of AI and machine learning and drug development, specifically biologics development, which is the core focus area of Big Hat. And in the case of Big Hat, biologics, um, you know, often you can find different definitions of the word, but specifically here we're going to be talking about protein therapeutics. So think antibodies, fusion proteins, growth factors, cytokines, hormones, a big space, um, but where the core drug is a macromolecule, um, and, and in this case, a protein. Um, we'd like to bring as many of you in the audience into the conversation as we can, and so our usual format here is that we'll have um, kind of a moderated discussion with Mark and Peyton, and then break out into a free-form discussion, or as we like to call it, an after-party hosted by my partners Venkat Macherla and Judy Savitskaya um, at just about the hour at six o'clock. And at that time, we'll just, we'll try to be really fluid and bring up lots of people um, from the audience to join the conversation. And just a quick note to everybody that this conversation is being recorded. And so um, for those of you who are interested in coming up to chat, just note that your words and profile image um, may appear in a future recording related to the event. 
All right, so let's get started. And again, welcome, Mark and Peyton. Um, let's just start with the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about your founding story? Why did you start Big Hat Bio? How did you arrive at this idea and decide to dedicate you know, this phase in your lives to the company? Uh, I'll, I'll start first with that. I guess there's sort of two answers. You know, there's a short answer and a long answer. The, the short answer is that it arose from a frustration that both Peyton and I experienced that we, we thought AI technology should be moving the needle in bio much more rapidly than it had. Um, and we kept puzzling over why this was, because it's obviously transforming tons and tons of industries, but it, 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 it seems like bio has been, been slower than everybody else. And that frustration led directly to you know, the founding of Big Hat to, to really address that issue. And so the longer narrative version of this is really that uh, I, my career has sort of been at the intersection of bio and tech uh, ever since I was an undergrad and then won a Marshall Fellowship that sent me to England to, to, to get a PhD in biochemistry. And the first thing I did after, as a newly minted PhD, was to try to become an experimentalist at Harvard, where I did a lot of pipetting, you know, creating mutants of the beta-lactamase enzyme and trying to study their biophysical properties. And this produced a, a fabulous paper in 2006 with a, co a couple of, of colleagues of mine. Uh, but it took us nearly a year to make 32 mutants of beta-lactamase and, and do basic characterization. And that experience of, of learning so much by making mutations of proteins really fed into this idea of Big Hat of how do we make better, how do we speed up the process of designing proteins and improve their properties? And that really drove home the, the underlying motivation of Big Hat. That's right. And I think we, you know, I think early in the days of, of sort of not just machine learning, but also kind of computation and biology, there's this kind of singular handoff where data is generated and it's kind of passed to folks who use computers or, or math and, and they sort of do the analysis and, and kind of finish a project. And so that's kind of this um, forward aspect of sort of you, you take input from the lab and you kind of, you know, make computational outputs. Um, and I think, you know, Mark and I are both talking about how I think the real impact will come when there's this ability to close the loop, right? Where you can take not just the data from the lab or that's being generated, analyze it, um, kind of look for trends, look for significance, but actually use that to then inform how you would redo the experiment or how you would design the next, next experiment. And so, you know, I think it's really, it's really hard when you spend a lot of time, as Mark is saying, de developing um, in, and uh, 32 mutants of, of one protein, um, you know, but in the modern days, now we have the technologies where we can actually sort of speed this up. Um, and so we, you know, really talked a lot about how the maximum impact from not just machine learning, but generally data and um, computation would come from integrating um, those components as, as much as possible in the scientific process and, and really making this closed loop as, as easy um, to get through as fast as possible. And why start with biologics? Did you hone in on biologics because they are this kind of you know, naturally programmable modality where, the, where an underlying sequence determines you know, um, you know, codes for the, the actual drug itself and it felt like low-hanging fruit, what led, you, what led you there amongst all the places where you might apply AI? Uh, I, so, I think that was the key driver. Uh, Peyton, did you want to jump in? Go ahead. 
Oh, I was saying, I absolutely, like, a key driver, I agree. I think it was also, we really cared about um, finding an experimental area um, where you could really realize this very low latency um, uh, kind of lab where you have a hypothesis, you come up with an in silico design, and you can realize, you know, what is the characterization? How does my prediction change? You know, how do I actually sort of get data from that prediction to know if I'm on the right track, if I'm more and more cold as quickly as possible? And, and biologics, I think, are a really great area um, for kind of making that closed loop as, as smooth as possible. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I just to, to reiterate that point, I mean, the programmable nature of, of biologics means that we could develop a single process in our lab that could, in principle, synthesize sort of every type of antibody or protein that we want. And that has been, I think, historically one of the most challenging things about doing something like Big Hat but in a small molecule world, because the synthesis of each small molecule can be very, very different. And so it's hard to see how you can, you can have that universal programmability that you get from the biologics. And that programmability meant that Big Hat was able to build its wet lab technologies and have them operate over at a pretty high scale pretty quickly. So we were, you know, we have a lab in San Carlos, California right now that can go from an in silico designed antibody to, you know, it, it can synthesize the DNA for it, make the protein, purify the protein and send it into a whole battery of assays in a kind of five day period now. And that cycle time of five days is, is falling rapidly as we, as we push the limits of the technologies. And that, given that we scale that out to hundreds and now in the future thousands and tens of thousands of antibodies, per week will mean that that we really can make a huge amount of designs and characterize their properties in exactly the way we need to learn how to make these maps between sequence and properties that are necessary to design ultra high quality molecules. There are companies out there that would say, hey, it's 2021, like we, antibody discovery is solved, antibody development is solved. You can outsource this to a CRO as long as you know your target they'll get you an antibody. Against that backdrop, can you explain for everybody kind of what's the best way to understand the core technology that Big Hat has built and why is it, why did you guys feel the conviction that it was needed? Uh, that's a great question. Peyton, do you want to take it or should I take it? You can kick us off. All right, good, good. So I think there's sort of two pieces to really understand. One is, and I think you know, to a, to a first approximation, the, the way that the antibody development is pretty well characterized, as you were saying, is, is, is not inaccurate. If you have a very specific type of target and you want to have a very constrained therapeutic molecule, like a monoclonal antibody, we've developed technologies that work quite well at discovering very, you know, tightly binding, high quality anti monoclonal antibodies. Um, so I think there, that that's 100% correct, and I, I wouldn't push back at all on that. And, and, and many companies in that space have done incredibly well, and, and it's exciting to see what they're doing. But the big challenge today, which really arose because there were limitations with those molecules, is that people want it to be able to do more than you can just do with a monoclonal antibody. You know, an example would be you want to use, you want to have specificity on two different heads of your antibody so you could kind of glue two molecules together with it. And that so-called bispecificity 
uh, is extremely difficult to create with uh, existing technologies. You know, the discovery process can still start with a mouse or human blood or display, but you nevertheless eventually end up having to glue these two things together and fix whatever kind of biochemical or biophysical problems that are introduced by that creation of this Frankenstein molecule. And that's, in some sense, the simplest design challenge in front of us. You know, if you think about a really hard design challenge, you know, you have car keys, which involve designing a, a chimeric antigen receptor, which is sort of part antibody, part receptor. And that design challenge really can't be solved by injecting something into a mouse. And so really, it's a spectrum from the type of target and the therapeutic hypothesis. If it's of a very specific form that fits the monoclonal story, then you sh should definitely use those existing technologies. They're fabulous. But as soon as you start getting off that trajectory and the more you are away from that, the harder and harder the design and engineering problem gets. And the more you need an iterative kind of feedback driven system like Big Hat is building to overcome the inevitable problems that you have designing antibodies and, and protein therapeutics. Well, and I Mark, think, um... it. Oh, it, it, sorry, sorry, Peyton. So, Mark, you know, uh, the other thing when I think about what MLAI can do is that its ability to just get better over time. So, it mm -hmm. sounds like you're comparing like current tech to current tech. How does this change? You know, one year, two year, five year, ten years from now. I think that sort of um, leads right into one of the comments I was going to make, which is actually this is kind of about you know what is an antibody actually. And I think when you sort of think about whether antibody engineering is solved, it's, it's kind of coming from the historical idea of like, what is an antibody, right? This is kind of an IgG, it's encoded in the genome, in the human genome, and, and you know, it's sort of this specific molecule, right? And so, um, you know, it's not so hard to, to, you know, immunize an animal to kind of get these kind of proto-antibodies or candidate antibodies that could be very good. But actually, you know, when you sort of think down the line, antibodies are a much broader class of molecules. I'll give you a fun example, which if you're not aware, um, some species, for example, camelids actually have antibodies that are made up of just heavy chains instead of a heavy and a light chain. So all of a sudden you think about that. I think this is also like lampreys and sharks and, and a lot of other kind of species you would not expect. And um, so you think about that and you, and you think actually antibody is not just, you know, this canonical configuration of a heavy and light chain. There's, there's different forms and you can kind of think about that, right? What happens, what happens if I make an antibody much smaller, a tiny antibody? It's, it's really actually much broader. And so I think what we're looking at in the in the long run is you know a broader definition of about an antibody, but at a, as you said in the beginning, Vanita, like a, a generally a therapeutic protein, right? And that actually is much broader. It doesn't just take the same form. It doesn't just bind. You can do things. You like it have an, you can have an agonist. It can cause, um, as Mark was saying, you can cause um, two proteins to come together. There are all sorts. It can be it can be induced in a certain pH of a system. There's there's a very broad, um, I guess, opportunity which when you think past what we thought of as the canonical antibody historical, historically um, is where a lot of the challenges come in. And that kind of leads to this nice mental uh, kind of trajectory of, well, then, you know, if you basically just want a certain therapeutic protein to have a certain function, it's a much broader opportunity, a much better class of, of designs. Then all of a sudden engineering really becomes a challenge, right? Because they don't just come out of the blood um, when you immunize an animal, for example. And then you really do need these next generation engineering technologies to be able to make those um, uh, visions of new therapeutic proteins a reality. Mark, I'm going to play back an analogy that you shared with me at one point, which, um, mm -hmm. which, which helped me, I think, be able to explain the platform in a, in a simple way, which was this analogy of a parachuter who, um, you know, is looking to find a certain place in a certain topology, let's say, but experimental screening 
paradigms, you know, basically shoot the parachuter off into a variety of different random places that he or she might be able to land on a very complex, big topology of, you know, multiple properties of an antibody, let's say. And they land there, and wherever they land, that's the local area that they get to explore. And they could decide, well, I like going, you know, I like taking two steps to the right and three steps to the, you know, forward, and that, that's a better place than where I landed. But there's a limitation in how much you can explore if you're tethered to an experimental screening modality versus a modeling approach where if you could iteratively map the topology of that surface and actually build a map, so to speak, then you might be able to say, well, I want X, Y, Z, and, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera, to be true about my therapeutic candidate. That could be everything from a functional property, that could be in function, you know, affinity to a target, that could mean manufacturability. But then I, I will guide my parachute to the place that I want to land versus exploring a local, you know, kind of a local hit out of a screen. Um, so I really like that analogy. I don't know if you guys still use it or if that was. Um... We do. I think I find I find I, I think about these things so often because it's so complicated. This this question of how do you search through a very complicated space? Mm -hmm. And so there's I, I, I and thank you for bringing up that analogy. And I think it's really great. Uh, you know, the. The truth of the matter is, you know, I think that analogy is very good. You know, you think about it is when you're screening randomly with like a library, right? What is effectively going on is you have a diversity of molecules and then you can kind of choose some subset of them based on a typically one property you can select for, right? You can pull a molecule out because it sticks to another molecule, which is why, you know, affinity is such a primary selection in it for antibodies. But if you think about that as, as, as trying to find like a good place to live on the planet, this is the analogy of like throwing out all these parachutes and they just kind of gum down onto the, the surface of the planet without, you know, really being able to move sophistic in any sophisticated way. It's just randomly dropping. And if you think to yourself, like, what's the chance that I would land in a good place to build a home? The chance is not good. What you really want is to be able to learn from the patterns nearby, right? You can look at this, you can see that there's a mountain nearby, you can see that there's forests, you can you saw a river, like you can guide your search as you go down, both you know, as the parachute's going down and walking toward a better place. And that analogy, I think, is exactly what you're seeing in, in the antibody world. You know, we start at the stage of creating the parachutes. We're we're looking around the, the space, but what we're trying to do is to learn all the kind of what made a good place to live and all the sorts of different places you could be so we can identify and then guide you to the best possible solution. You know, if you happen to want to live in France or if you happen to want to live in Australia, we can learn about good places to live from previous experiences parachuting onto the planet. And, and that ability is key to create high quality molecules. Well, and as strong as the analogy is, it, this is not in a two-dimensional space, you know, on a three-dimensional sphere, but in this ridiculously huge space, the huge dimensional space of sequences that I think it's really hard for people to grasp just how ridiculously large is, you know, you can't randomly sample it and get anywhere. Uh, yeah, so, so, so in I fact, think that's I was trying, huge. I, I was trying to compute this question of, you know, there's something like 20 to the 50th configurations for an antibody sequence if you just consider the cdrs alone which is not too not is a small fraction of total antibody 
So, yeah. and we have libraries that get to kind of 10 to the 10. So you're talking about like 10 to the 50 versus 10 to the 10. And that means that even big libraries sample essentially 0% of the space. Yeah, and so you, exactly. you, you've got to, the only way to move through that space in a sophisticated way is to learn how to move fast over many cycles so that you can wander in a guided way toward the best place to be in that multidimensional space. And, and it, we've got to, got to do that to succeed. There's just no, that's right. Option. And I, and I think it's interesting because you also need, you need, need to do that on several scales, right? I, I like this analogy of sort of parachuting, parachuting in to find a place to live, which is, you know, maybe you decide you, you know, you want to explore uh, France and, and Mexico and a, a lot of different countries and you, and you sort of do one, you know, I guess, pass to figure out, okay, I'm going to go drop in somewhere and see. It'd be horrible if you did that and you ended up, you spent all this time exploring all these areas and you just jump, you know, in, in one random field in France, right? Once you get there, you want to be able to walk around and find a nice, nice spot for your house. And I think there's, you know, the need, um, especially for this kind of iteration that we really enable with our platform, because, you know, you want to not just be able to explore a very vast space, but when you're close to something that's really, really good, steps away even, you also need the ability, right, to make those small adjustments. And I think that's one of those difficulties that these big um, screens, uh, kind of going back to how antibody engineering technology works now, when you have a huge screen and you have to design up front, right, to explore a certain area, it's it's really slow and laborious, and sometimes you just get stuck with the with the, the place you happen to uh, drop um, drop in, even if that's you know steps away from right. something that could be really incredible. And so right. having kind of that macro exploration as well as being able to sort of locally um, kind of optimize is is like they both are key actually to really finding these kind of high quality molecules. And what you just described, you know, Peyton, of course, you know, is a, is a expensive, complex phase of drug development that essentially, you know, is described as lead optimization. And so even if you do do a, um, an experimental screen and get to an antibody candidate, um, typically there are lots of reasons why lead optimization is still challenging and where we might still be leaving kind of value on the table by going um, with a okay candidate when we might be just steps away from a really great um, drug candidate. And, um, Exactly. And, and, and you see that it's very common. You know, if you talk to people who are developing, you know, who are big enough to have a portfolio of therapeutics that they're developing, you know, one of the things that uh, you often see in this, right, is that there's sort of criteria, right? Like you've got to have all greens on all these different development criteria before the molecule can move forward. But, you know, you also simultaneously have to advance 10 molecules every year to keep the pipeline full. And they basically have to take the top 10, even though there's lots of stuff that has, you know, isn't green on every column. So you get some of the way toward what you want. You know what else you're missing, but you don't have a really good way of fixing up the molecule like that. And, and that happens all the time. So you get situations where, for instance, you have really good affinity, but the molecule's unstable. And you want to preserve high affinity while fixing up the stability or... Vice versa, you might realize that you're very happy with the clinical profile of your molecule. It looks really great, but because it's insoluble, you can't, you're forced to do an IV uh, administration as opposed to a sub-Q injection, which requires you to concentrate the antibody more. And that means that you know, there's much less compliance and then the, you know, the patients really suffer. I, so, right, so the, I, go ahead. I was going to say, so the, the so kind so, of what you're what you're describing is the the intrinsic trade-offs that tend to happen if you do this in a serial way, real way, right? Where if you're trying to optimize 
for one parameter at a time, each sort of iteration you make on that parameter probably has a cost on the other various parameters that you want to optimize for um, as well. So there's a benefit to doing this in a, uh, in a parallel way so that you actually arrive at the ideal location as quickly and as closely as possible. That's exactly right. And we, we it's funny, we often talk about this um, whack-a-mole analogy, which is, you know, this is one sequence, right? So if you, if you uh, propose some mutations to your antibody to really improve the affinity or how well it binds its target, you know, it, it's, it's uh, naive to think, for example, that doesn't affect other properties of, of the protein, right? It's the same molecule. Um, and so there's kind of this whack-a-mole often with um, drug development um, where you want to propose some changes that will positively improve one trait. And, you know, you don't actually measure until it's too late the fact that all of a sudden now your antibodies are aggregating, right? And you can't deliver them. And so this is, this is a problem, right? Because you kind of have this waterfall approach where you optimize one criterion after the other. And then at the end, you've kind of gone in circles and end up with, with just uh, sort of new warts in the molecule. And so we... We are very obsessed with basically measuring everything we can about a molecule um, at one time. How do you actually think about all the ways you could assess, will this be a good drug or not? And all these biophysical properties that we talked about, even getting into sort of downstream function, um, as you're describing, we'd like to bring those basically into one loop. Um, so we measure each of them along the way. We can optimize to all of them simultaneously. So we don't have this whack-a-mole problem where one you know, really incredible mutation causes you know, 10 uh, detriments to the same molecule. And I think ultimately that will, will tremendously speed along um, the process of getting a kind of a good candidate to be an actually good drug that you would be ready to put in a patient. So in the, so in the, in the parachuting analogy, this is um, dropping into not only do I want to live in France, is I want to parachute into a place in France that has good views, cheap rents, access to schools, good restaurants, and high, you know, high quality Wi-Fi in, exactly. one, jump, right. in one jump. And no COVID, that's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and, and that multi-dimensional, that sort of multi-parameter selection just makes it so difficult without an iter you know holistic kind of optimizer on the back end right because if you imagine that each you know each place you could look at has a 20 percent chance of having one property you care about then the more properties you select on very quickly you have essentially nothing left from a random search but if you can guide you can fix things up and and, and overcome that kind of exponential in the wrong direction and there's even one other benefit, right, which is that these properties aren't all independent, like they're related, right? This all comes down to the same biophysics. Um, and so this, the, there's a, kind of this added synergy where as you measure all these properties along the way, um, you're actually learning a little bit about each other. And that's kind of where I think there's this huge opportunity, kind of getting back to the original question of, you know, where, where's a lot of opportunity sort of for machine learning and computation when you now collect all this data at the same time and it's actually all related, right? Whether or not you aggregate will you know, affect, um, you know, whether or not there'll be immunogenic reaction or whether you can actually, you know, ship um, this uh, biologic around the world to, to patients who need it. Now, all of a sudden, you can start to model that and sort of learn the kind of the correlations and, and the covariances there. Um, and that's really a new opportunity, right? Because you can kind of transfer as well across the new molecules. And so by, by you know, there's, there's multiple kind of um, levels to the benefits, not just that you get to measure all these things and do them in parallel, but actually there's kind of a synergistic effect now where they all relate to each other and by optimizing one, you can sort of improve and, and affect um, the other properties you also care deeply about. It's a very holistic yeah. view of what it takes to be a drug. Yes, I think that's a great, and, and we do things because of that, of that, you know, I think other people really value, but are super natural for Big Hat to be doing at kind of 10 or 100x everyone else's rate. So a good example of this is 
we're really fixated on, on questions of proxies for more downstream things you care about. And I give kind of two, two concrete examples. So stability of the molecule is important, but in many cases, you actually care about things like refrigeration time, like how, how much activity remains if you keep your antibody at 20 degrees for a week, for at 20 degrees for three weeks, at, at four degrees for a week, right? That kind of multi -pro, multi-dimensional relationship is something that we're learning on the fly and actively pursuing data generation opportunities so we can basically build models that'll say things like, I know these types of mutations are stabilizing, but these specific subsets are also helpful for making sure that you survive three, freeze-thaw cycles or allow you to be inhalable. And we have that example of sort of stability and all these sort of perturbations you might do to your molecules and distribution. But we also have that on production. You know, we're, we're building a map between the expression levels that we see on our platform and the expression levels you would see in a Cho cell so that we can optimize our molecules for yields now on our platform with confidence that that'll translate into you know, 100 liter or 100,000 liter reactors it, with Cho cells without having to go do you know, some astronomical number of experiments in these giant reactors, which is infeasible. So let's talk a little bit about this, this feedback loop that you guys have mentioned a couple of times, right? And so I think in this broader space, if we zoom out and ask, you know, kind of what's been hype and what's been real in this world of bringing computational technologies, you know, machine learning to drug development, a lot of the initiatives that, you know, that have turned out, I think, in the last few years to kind of be truly most productive and truly real in their value have had as a cornerstone exactly what you're talking about now, Mark, which is the inclusion of experimental data and high throughput experimental data and a very deep recognition that there's no way you solve this parachute optimization problem entirely in silico. Like you can't just go out and find the right data sets that have already been generated in some other context and wishfully kind of will into existence a model of the topology. I think we, that's been, there are multiple examples suggesting that that's just less likely, you know, to produce real value. Whereas what, what Big Hat's trying to do is build a tight connectivity between the wet lab and the dry lab. Can you guys talk about what that has been like to build? Uh, sure. And, and we, and I'm sure we'll both chime in because there's all sorts of aspects about this. So I think one is, I think we should just, things that are worth talking about on this, in my view, are what, what has been, why do we think that's so true? Why is it so important to, to, to couple the two? And then one of the biggest challenges, which I think it might be great to have Peyton chime in after I go in, is, is the challenge of building a culture where we can solve that problem. And that's something that, you know, I've been, you know, really impressed with Peyton's ability to, to, to actually create that environment in our lab, because that was, I, I would say, one of the key challenges. So why don't I start on the first part about sort of why, why we're, we're, we're fighting this battle, and then Peyton could talk about how, how we're sort of winning it. You know, the, the, the reason for, for doing this integrated experiment and computation is just that there there's sort of a couple of fundamental things you need to make progress doing machine learning. And one thing you need is access to first to data sets to train your models. 
And that sort of gets you to some level of, of performance. But very quickly, what you, what you care most about in doing machine learning is finding cases where your predictions are wrong. Right, you're very confident that like this is going to be a stabilizing mutation, and it just you know it destabilizes the protein enormously. Um, that is th the best way to get that data. Really, is to have a model in hand that makes that prediction, and then you you go and you test that specific strong prediction in your lab, so that you know you get the feedback on where the model is right or wrong. And every week at Big Hat, because we have this integrated lab. Every time we're making predictions on what model, what mutation should be good and which properties, we're essentially getting validation data on the model's performance every week in, in the things that matter most to us, which is the mutations that improve the properties of antibodies. And so that integration basically provides us with exactly the training data Big Hat needs day in and day out to realize the improvements that we want in our molecules. And to and so, realize where you need more information, right? Exactly. And to, and to recognize that, hey, this part of the model, we're lacking, we're lacking information and are lacking enough data to be intelligent on. Exactly. You can think about it as sort of, the, we're always cold starting our models with all the existing data. And then the game at Big Hat is played on what's the right new data to generate to sort of push that model much further than it, than it can reach from the generic data sets that are accessible publicly. You know, one nuance which might not be appreciated by non-ML aficionados is that sometimes people think this is about just checking your answer, you know, were you right or wrong or close. But, you know, this, again, the space is so big that just having a lay of the land uh, in technical terms, you know, a latent space, a low dimensional representation, some sort of map of that space, that alone could go a long way because if you can come up with that, now your search gets a lot simpler and, and you can bring to bear a lot of tools. So I yeah. think uh, I can imagine just even that process helps whatever in antibody project you're working on as well as antibody projects in general. That's exactly right. And I think um, a great point about the latent space, and I'll, I'll add one complexity, which is that you can kind of think, and I think one of the popular ways to think about kind of sort of ML for biological sequences like proteins, um, protein or DNA sequences is kind of just to, to have an embedding or this, this latent representation. But we think about a molecule as basically much more than just the sequence. Um, and I think this is kind of gets into kind of what it's, what it's been like to build a platform, which has been honestly tons of fun, and I don't even know where to start. But um, I'll start with this, which is that a molecule or a protein or an antibody is a function also of how it's been produced, not just of its sequence. So if you take this DNA, you basically, you know, take some of the DNA, you basically produce it in a bunch of cells, you purify it, you sort of go through all these processes. What you measure at the end is not just a function of that sequence, but it's actually a function of the entire process. And so when you think about, um, as Vijay was saying, having a, a latent space to kind of, or, or an easier, more concise representation over which to optimize, now you need to not just include, you know, a, a string of, of, of amino acids that's several hundred long, but also think about how to include all the other parts of the experimental cycle that that antibody has seen. And now you have to compress all of that and sort of think about how to optimize all of those pieces. And so this is really, this is, this is an incredible challenge. And this is a challenge not just on the computational side to kind of take a lot of data and to make that an embedding or, or latent representation, but to think about how the process can be optimized to also facilitate that embedding, right? It's, it's basically very cross-functional between every aspect of, of um, our integrated platform, which includes, you know, uh, protein sciences, sort of 
uh, hardware engineering, data science, software engineering, machine learning, all, all of the above. And so it, it's been, uh, I guess, an incredible journey because we've, the way we operate is basically bringing all those pieces together on a regular basis. So almost every meeting um, at, at Big Hat, sort of every um, module we add to the platform, you know, this basically pulls on, on every area of the company. Um, and so, you know, it, it all basically kind of has to come together, together. To, to not just create um, these uh, sort of, you know, beautiful data sets, data sets to learn how the data sets should be produced, right, to support sort of the machine learning side. When you said module, is there an example you can, I love the idea also of having modularity in all of this where you can, you know, potentially for candidates that you've already run through the platform, you get to go back and learn something additional about them or characterize them in a new way or, um, you know, or, or and kind of have the ability to, in a modular fashion, grow your data set. Can you guys give Absolutely. us a, a concrete example of that on the experimental so side? When I say a, a module, it's a great question. Uh, when I, I basically think about a property that I want to measure of uh, my protein or my antibody. And so this can be um, the stability. This could be the affinity, affinity. This could be the aggregation propensity. And so basically, every time you have something new you want to measure about how your antibody functions, or you need a way to measure it. And so we think about, you know, not every campaign will need to, to, to um, send a molecule through every module. Um, and in fact, you know, certain... Um, so I'll give you a very clear, concrete example. So say, for example, you want to optimize an antibody towards SARS-CoV-2. We all care about that. Um, you know, maybe in some cases I need to measure uh, not just, for example, the binding of my antibody to a target like, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 spike, but now also the ACE2 receptor. So maybe in some cases, you know, I have a very specific kind of um, assay, for example, like a, a competition assay or competitive ELISA, where I want to compare those. In other cases, I don't care as much. So the modularity basically says that my algorithms can choose which data will be useful for them to learn, and that we basically can, in an efficient way, route the molecules sort of through the platform, through the modules that matter, and basically collect data on them where, and aggregate that where needed. Um, and so there's very, basically a very high efficiency of the system. You collect data where you need, you don't waste time and effort or, or um, resources where you don't. Cool. So it could be a module related to a functional property of the therapeutic. It could be a module related to a biological assay that you add on to the platform. And in each case, you could decide which candidates you actually want to run through that module if that information will, you know, or if that, if that assay will be informative to the underlying model. Cool. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, maybe this actually... is... Oh, go ahead. No, I think your point about about function is a great one, and that's actually one of the one of the pieces we think about the most, which is, you know, again, we kind of talked about an antibody being more than just binding, um, and how ideally, if you want to measure everything about whether an antibody will eventually be a good drug, you want to measure as much as possible about how it operates or how it functions in the real environment. So instead of just does it bind a protein, does it actually bind the protein on that cell? Does it actually bind that protein on the cell when that cell is in a tissue? You know. Does it actually bind um, or, or uh, you know, execute a function in sort of the native system? And so, you know, as you think about sort of bringing on different modules that replicate how well an antibody will act in a, a, a kind of very realistic um, uh, environment, um, you basically get more and more specific, right? Which is that an antibody, you only want to measure that if the antibody actually should function in that system. And so you have this, this routing ability and sort of this modularity really allows you to have very specific assays that, that tell you how well an antibody will function where you, where you really deeply care about it. But you still have sort of these broader level characterization um, modules of, of kind of 
core biophysics that are generalizable to everything. And so you, you kind of have this um, ability to operate on the platform at different sort of levels of specificity. This platform could have so many applications. Um, and I know, you know, we're still in the early days of thinking those through and, and you guys are constantly prioritizing different applications. But to the extent that you can share, and maybe one way to do it is to, is to reflect on what you've learned even just from the market and from, you know, established biopharma companies and where their pain points are. Are there any, um, are there any kind of, is there a framework you can, um, that you feel comfortable sharing with us about some of the criteria that you think about as you think about where to you know, point and shoot this platform and these models and this modular infrastructure? Yeah, that's, I'm happy to take that. It's, it's, it's something we think about all the time. And, and I think we, we think about this as a, as a spectrum. So there's, you know, today in Big Hat's life cycle, you know, we're, we're building the platform. We're really working with partners to, to overcome issues in their molecules or in their design campaigns that have been, that have been proven you know, intractable for them with their existing tech. And then we're, of course, expanding into our own therapeutic efforts um, that, in particular, we think are, are complementary to what we're seeing in the market. And so what, what we, the way we see the lay of the land and antibody world is similar to, in some sense, the very first question you had. You know, there's a reasonable number of people out there who have a novel target, and it's, it's hittable with a monoclonal antibody, and they want to just bind it and stop it, and you know, do, totally standard thing. Um, they're, that group of people are generally pretty happy with their antibodies and are off to the races. And we're not really even trying to talk to them because I think they're, they've got pretty good, uh, pretty good service from what, what else is out there. Um, but there is a subset of people, you know, this is a non-trivial fraction of both all the efforts today, in particular in, in, in areas where the targets are sort of known and the problems are ultimately like molecular design more than they are target discovery. And in that world, things are much more challenging. You know, people are going after targets where they know monoclonals won't work. The, the target's too small. They've tried every possible immunization and, and you can't get antibodies against it. And in that scenario, we're very excited to work with them. And, and they, that sort of encompasses everything from I can't get an, a high enough affinity antibody. I can't, you know, I can't make something that's soluble enough to mo really complicated multidimensional optimization. Like I can't make antibodies that bind human and mouse. So I can't do my preclinical studies. That group of people were very, we're focused on finding, partnering with them and advancing those molecules as quickly as possible into the clinic. But that's not, as you were saying, the space of all the things the platform can do. And, and one of the things we've, we're, we've, you know, I think we're excited to observe and have really leaned into as part of, uh, as our, now that we're a series A company, as you know, is really finding areas where the platform is able to do things that are incredibly challenging, if not impossible to do with previous tech. And there are some areas that they're a good example of that. But so, you know, if you think about it, it the, the biggest selection criteria for almost all the previous tech has been affinity. You can basically pull a molecule out uh, proportional to how much affinity it has to its target. And so in situations where 
binding infinity is the the really the major goal, you should just use that tech. But that often leaves things like agonists, which are whose job is not to suppress the signal, but to actually activate the signal of a receptor. Or if you wanted to bind, say, two molecules together, like a glue, in any number of different forms, you know, you wanted to bind the combined surface, you want to bind the two molecules separately, you want to all, do all of that kind of stuff. That is much harder to do with existing tech. There's very few programs that are focused on those kind of questions. And so Big Hat is pretty heavily leaning into areas where we see affinity is not the same thing as, as therapeutic function and running to ground kind of all of those opportunities. Why is it that, so basically where exactly do you see this breakdown where affinity doesn't lead to high quality therapeutics? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So and now it is our privilege to join you on that journey. It's just, it's so interesting and there's such a huge diversity of application areas accessible to you. So we're super excited. Yeah. And by the way, everyone on here is under CDA, so you can go into as much detail as you like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm the specific. Um, and our <laughs> targets are, no. <laughs> it's, it's, the next, it's the next feature we'll have to ask Paul to build up here, uh, an auto CDA <laughs> for, cl- for clubhouse attendees. <laughs> it is funny, you know, when we think about this, we often contrast where we are as Big Hat, which is really focused in this molecular engineering side, you know, making therapeutic agents. And that's, you know, obviously we have to have a thing we're trying to modify so that, you know, we ha- we're dependent on targets just like everybody else in the pharmaceutical space. Um, but what we, what's, you know, interesting is there really is a, there's a, there's a view, I think, out in, in the community in biopharma that sort of targets are everything and targets are, are where the value is. And the thing that's funny about that view is that there are a lot of things where the targets are given and they're never going to get any better, you know. Cancer is a good example of like, there's just recurrently mutated things. <laughs> That's what we're going to have to live with. We're going to have to s- figure out how to use the common mutations, for instance, to KRAS or other things that really are the hallmarks of human cancers. And the story of, of making advances in cancer therapeutics is largely one of getting more and more effective molecular designs, not necessarily discovering new targets because the targets are pretty well understood. And that's true in a surprisingly large amount of areas. You know, if you want to manipulate the immune system, you know, we have basically a full list of all the cytokines and all their receptors. And, and the challenge is not to discover some secret new cytokine that nobody knows about yet that like controls everything, but in fact, to make good use, intelligent, sophisticated use of the actual molecules that we already know about. It's fascinating. I mean, the, the, the opportunity there, I mean, is so vast. Um, a couple of uh, sort of questions on the company building side and, and really just the future that I, I'm serious, uh, super curious about. Um, you know, we have these, you know, this running joke at the, at the, at, uh, at the bio, on the bio team here at A16Z, where we talk about like this fictional future biotech startup, right? Where, which we call Miami Beach Biotech. I, I may have added the Miami. Um, you may have, yeah. My, at Miami Beach Biotech, this place is amazing. Um, <laughs> employees can sit with a laptop on the beach and perform everything you need to do for drug design 
through some combination of machine learning and biophysical simulation and, you know, roboticized experiments and really just external, external development and manufacturing services. Like you just run everything off of a, of a machine, off of a laptop. How far away are we from that future? Like how, how much do we need to be integrated with the, and closely and tightly integrated with the wet, squishy stuff in the wet lab? You know, I actually don't think we're that far away. And I think this is kind of a, we had never thought about it as my Miami Beach biotech, um, but I think we are- San Carlos biotech is good too. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, the Baylands aren't quite as, I don't say, beautiful and sandy, but uh, I still love them. Um, yeah, I think- The you water's know, so are, cold. <laughs> the water is very cold. Um, but the weather is good. Um, we think about this a lot, actually. And I think like just how to, the more you can scale towards that vision, and I think that vision is not just the sitting on the beach, but essentially like having all the machinery you need to actually do this effectively while not local, I, I think is huge. And it's also just huge for Big Head as we grow. Um, and in particular, you know, what that really means is that if you're able to do that, that means you have a highly controlled and highly repeatable process. process. And this is what we really care about, right? When we build a platform, we think about how do we think about all these sort of steps, all these modules we talked about, and kind of, uh, you know, I guess all the sort of variants that they, they induce, right? If you have a lot of people coming in, if you have different environments, different humidities, different temperatures, you're producing molecules, you know, there can be a lot of, a lot of um, sort of uh, variance or disruption in, in the process. And I think the more that you can make um, a kind of an, an automated and hands-off version that's really run ro by robotics, by automation, and not just with people, um, but sort of scales the output through machinery, you get closer to this vision. And you don't just get closer to this vision of sitting on the beach, but you get closer to the vision of deep control of your data, about being able to run many kind of programs um, simultaneously with uh, you know, high confidence in the quality that you'll be able to produce, um, high confidence in the ability to integrate data because you know with high confidence that processes that produce that data, you know, I think were, were um, performed many times over in, in the exact same way and you can combine them. Um, and, and, you know, also your employees are happy, right? Cause they can sit on the beach with a, with a pina colada. But I think most importantly, you know, this really, it puts a, a good forcing function on development of something like, um, the big hat platform. And we're really excited by that vision. Yeah. And so I given think... that, Oh, go ahead. Uh, so I just want quick question. So given that, um, you guys obviously didn't go with Miami beach biotech as the name of the company. How did you come up with big hat? I, I mean, is that the <laughs> runner up to Miami beach biotech? <laughs> Yeah, the world needs to know. The world needs um, to know. It's a great question. Um, so Big Hat is actually named after the statistical hat operator. I'm sorry to be a little bit nerdy, but um, the hat operator is actually kind of, uh, it means basically an estimator, an estimated value. And so, you know, when we've talking throughout this um, uh, conversation about sort of measuring everything about an antibody or a protein, you know, not just the sequence, but everything that happens to it, you know, you can picture a little hat on top of those. How do I estimate actually what happened to my protein? What's the effect uh, for example, using a little bit more DNA or a little bit less or producing um, a protein in sort of, you know, a 37C versus a 30C environment. So we basically think about the hat as estimating everything that happens um, to our designs to actually, uh, you know, understand how they were produced and how good their drug-like properties are and constantly making it, maintaining an estimator, all those, improving models to predict those and sort of using those models to reinform what we do. So we, we think about sort of Big hat in a big way, sort of the, the giant hat operator over the entire platform.